podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. God said it was going to go badly from the start. See, the people came to the the prophet Samuel and they weren't asking, they weren't hinting, they were telling him, look, Samuel, frankly, you're past it. And your sons are a bunch of rat bags who aren't fit to follow in your footsteps. So we've all got together here and we've decided that what we'd like is a king. Thank you very much. I mean, look around you, Samuel. Every nation who's going places has got a king. A king would be so great for our country. I mean, we'd have a single leader who could set a vision and inspire us. We'd have a leader who could raise up men and women in our military and in our economy. The king could be a benefactor of the arts and found cultural institutions. We could even put the king's image on coins and tea towels and those little spoons to raise revenue. Come on, Samuel, it would be fantastic. That's what we really need. We need a king. We don't want to be left behind, do we? Well, as you can imagine, after many years of faithful service, Samuel's just a little bit put out at being having made redundant by the people. But that's nothing to how God feels about being rejected by the people's request. After all, he he actually thought he was their king. That instead of installing some middleman between God and God's people, God had chosen to be their king so that they could be his chosen people. That unlike the gods of the nations around them, the God of Israel allowed his presence to be to be not privatised, not individualised in the divine right of some kings who live in palatial castles up on hills. God had chosen to be present day by day in the midst of the people. God had made his home among them, leading them and travelling with them everywhere they went. But clearly, clearly that wasn't enough for the people because what they wanted was what the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites had. They wanted a head that could be crowned. They wanted a hand that could be kissed. They wanted an heroic leader they could adore and worship in the flesh. I mean, as far as they could see, having a king was all upside. But listen to this message that God delivers through his prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. As God lays out and makes painfully clear just what the people should expect from this king they want so much. This is the way the kind of king you're talking about operates. He'll take your sons and make them soldiers, chariotry, cavalry, infantry, regimented in battalions and squadrons. He'll put some to forced labour on his farms ploughing and harvesting and others, making either weapons of war or chariots in which he can ride in luxury. He'll put your daughters to work. As beauticians and waitresses and cooks, he'll conscript your best fields, vineyards and orchards, and he'll hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests and vintage to support his extensive bureaucracy, your prize workers and your best animals 
he'll take for his own. He'll lay a tax on your flocks and you'll end up no better than slaves. The day will come when you will cry in desperation because of this king you've wanted so much, but don't expect God to answer. You see, God knew that it would go badly from the start. But like a loving parent who realises that in order for children to grow up, sometimes they need to find out for themselves. In order to learn to make good decisions, we actually need the space to make decisions, which includes experiencing the consequences. So God instructs Samuel to give the people what they've asked for. And throughout the books of First and Second Samuel, we get this extraordinary picture of the lives of the first two kings, Saul and David. Please forgive me if what I'm about to say sounds a little bit judgmental, but Saul's kingship, it's a dumpster fire. One commentator I read said, Saul was one of the most pathetic of all of God's chosen servants. Ouch. Which is kind of why I think that at the start, the reign of King David comes in like this extraordinary fresh air. David is the youngest son of Jesse, so inconsequential that when David sends Samuel to check out the sons of Jesse to see whether or not anyone would be suitable to be the king, they don't even ask David to show up. Because, well, that kid with the acne who smells like sheep isn't exactly kingly material. But they were wrong about that. David grows to become one of the heroes of Israel. I mean, who can ever forget the story of David and Goliath that Elisha referred to before? It's the ultimate underdog story where a shepherd boy that's too weak to stand up with armour on brings the largest giant crashing to the ground with a handful of river rocks. David is one of those annoying people that seems to have it all. He was handsome and had beautiful eyes, the Bible tells us. Both men and women loved him. He was a brilliant military strategist. He was a uniter of the nation, a a capturer of the city of Israel. He was an artist and a poet, a musician. And as God's chosen one, unlike his predecessor Saul, who was frankly addicted to the adulation of the crowds, David actually seems to genuinely want to live out of his love for God. Unlike Saul, who had a really hard time obeying God, David seeks God and listens to God and obeys God and gives God all of the credit. So God makes a covenant with David, sending his prophet Nathan to declare that God's going to make David's name great across all of the earth that God will give David rest from the relentless attacks of enemies, that he will raise up his children into a kingdom, and that unlike Saul, God will not take his steadfast, loyal love away from David. But here's the thing. That's actually only half of the story. The narrative of the heroic King David is just one side of the coin. And when we turn the coin over, what's also true is that David became a bully and a merciless military power broker, that David became a ruthless acquirer of pleasure 
and advantage, stockpiling wives and wealth and concubines. David becomes the kind of man who that when he liked something, he saw something that he liked, he just took it, including other men's wives. David thought that he could murder another man with impunity if it helped to protect his reputation. And David's own family, well, it was a mess. Amnon raped Tamar, one of David's daughters. One of his sons raped his daughter Tamar. And David didn't lift a finger to do anything about it. In fact, Absalom, another one of his sons, was so enraged by this fact that he kills his brother in revenge. And after a period of exile, Absalom comes back home and while he reconciles with his father, it's only short-lived because he then goes on to seek both his father's death and his father's throne. Frankly, I can only imagine what family gatherings would have looked like around David's table given that level of dysfunction. And in the ultimate irony, it's like David became that overconfident, overblown giant presence he began his career bringing crashing to the ground with a few small stones. In the end, was David a good man or a bad man? Are the beauty of the Psalms he wrote in any way tarnished by the sins of the writer? Can we listen to the words of David crying out to God without hearing the cries of Tamar crying out for justice? I really wish that sometimes the Bible wasn't so real, that it wasn't so true to life. I really wish it was better at serving up stories of cardboard cutout kinds of people where the heroes are really heroes all the way down and the villains, the villains are black through to their hearts. David is so incredibly full of contradictions. There's so much good and so much bad, so much light and so much darkness in his story. I was going to say it amazes me that a person who had such a deep and personal and intimate relationship with God can be so deeply flawed. But then I realised that's everyone's story, isn't it? Putting our faith in God doesn't make us perfect, does it? It just means that we've given up any hope in thinking that we can save ourselves. And trusting in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus isn't a fast track to health, wealth and happiness. It's a lifeboat that we crawl into gasping for breath once we realise we're drowning. And where through no effort on our part, we find our broken and messed up lives held and put back together in the loving arms of God. David might have been made a king, but he was also a man, just a human being, not a giant, just human-sized, subject to the same human wrestling we all face in our lives between the best parts of us and the worst parts of us, between the parts of us that know what is right and what is good and the parts of us that sometimes can't even remember who we are and that we've decided 
to flee from evil and do no wrong. There's this story that I love. You might have heard it too. It's about a rabbi in the first century and he's been out sharing a meal with friends in a village and he's walking home. And on the way to his village, there's this fork in the road and if he goes to the left, he'll find himself at a Roman garrison. If he goes to the right, he'll find himself at home. Well, it's dark and it's late and he's had a few drinks, so he goes left and he finds himself at the foot of this Roman garrison where this guard says to him, who are you and what are you doing here? The rabbi's silent for a moment. The guard says again, who are you and what are you doing here? The rabbi says, how much do they pay you to do what you're doing? The guard says, a hundred denarii. The rabbi replies, I'll pay you twice that if you come to my house every day and ask me those questions. You see, I love that story because it explains so much about why I can't stop myself from doing the things I don't want to do and why I can't seem to do the things that I want. Because the best explanation I have is that that there are moments where I forget who I am and what I'm doing. I forget that I'm a beloved child of God who has already been given everything that I need. I forget, and when I do that, I start looking around for ways that I can prop up my self-esteem with projects and relationships that make me appear successful, that give meaning to my life, that make me feel good about myself. I forget that I can't earn God's love and that I don't have to perform to win God's favour because I already have both of those things in spades. But you see, when I forget that, it's like this anxiety rises within me and I start to tell myself that I have to do more and work harder. I start forgetting that what really matters in my life are relationships and people. I become so so self-focused that I simply can't see the people around me. And I start telling myself that that because I work hard, I deserve things that aren't in fact meant for me. But when I remember, when I remember who I am and whose I am, when I know that I'm God's beloved child, it's like standing in an ocean of peace. It's like being held and carried by a force that is beyond me, but is so for me. It's not like everything suddenly turns to rainbows and unicorns. It's just that when you know who you are, when you know whose you are, it's like being able to stand in this solid place in the world from which suddenly everything else is possible. Everything else is doable. There were moments in David's life, just like there are moments in our lives, where we forget who we are, when we fall into sin, when we miss the mark. And while God never abandons David, God doesn't hold back the consequences of David's sin from him. And one of those consequences is that David's difficulties would be made public that everyone in Israel would know about all of David's mistakes. 
the heroic aura of this man who once seemed like he had everything would be pierced. And David's imperfections would be laid bare for everyone to see forever. Another consequence is that David wasn't the first in this extraordinary line of succession of kings that would last for generation after generation. In fact, David's line ended after his grandson's Rehoboam's three-year reign. And many, many, many generations later, David is just a story that people tell around the campfire if they talk about him at all. The great kingdom that God had promised to build for David and his descendants never came to pass. One of the things that surprised me when Christopher and I uh, went on a trip to Israel was just exactly what living in a desert really looks like. I don't know why, but it was surprising to see just how little vegetation, how little trees there truly are in the desert. It really makes you notice them. It really makes them stand out. On the same trip, we went to visit Nazareth, of course, where Jesus grew up. And I noticed this tree. It's an olive tree that had died and had been cut down, but up on its side of the dead tree trunk, a shoot had sprung up and there was this new tree that was growing. The line of David looked a lot like that tree. It looked dead. It looked spent. It looked completely exhausted. But God sent a prophet named Isaiah with this message. A shoot. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From this root, branches will bear fruit. And again, even after Isaiah's words, many, many years passed and the Israelites find themselves again labouring under the heel of oppression of Roman kings, living like slaves. And out of the line of David, out from the root of Jesse, God raises up a son. And not just any son, but a true son a true and a good king through which God will save his people. And of course, his name was Jesus. So what does this story about the life of David have to tell us about God's favour? Well, firstly, that the favour of God comes to us in the midst of us pushing God away. That even though God knew that Israel was going was gonna to get this king and that it was going to go badly. God didn't abandon the people. God didn't wash, their ha- wash his hands of them because they'd made a bad decision. God allowed them to experience the consequences of their decision within the bounds of his loving purposes. And that's because the favour of God is present always despite our human failure. I mean, Let's just be real. The last person who's surprised about any failure that we make is God. Because God's favour, God's God's grace is an expression of who God is. God didn't start favouring us because, well, someone had to deal with that mess that happened in the Garden of Eden. God's favour and grace isn't a response to sin. It's an expression of who God is. The inner life of God is filled with grace. God's favour has been upon us before the very beginning of time. 
which is why God's favour doesn't make us perfect people. It doesn't mean we're never going to put a foot wrong. The favour of God isn't like some golden ticket or some blank cheque that means we'll never have to experience the consequences of our choices. It just means that God is so committed to our good and to the good of the world that God isn't going to let our mistakes get in the way of his redemptive purposes. What David's story tells us about the favour of God is that our brokenness is no barrier for God and for his redemptive purposes. You see, the witness of Scripture over and over and over and over again is that the people God chooses to work through his purposes are always, without exception, messed up. And they, while they might begin their lives with their lives broken into a million pieces in different ways, what's amazing is the way in which God can take those pieces and reconfigure them and breathe new life into them in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. You see, God makes living shoots spring up in the lives and in the hearts of people who are dead. God takes our sin and its consequences and turns it for his good. God takes you and me, sons and daughters of dysfunctional families, and he reparents us and turns us into beloved sons and daughters of the living God. God knows that some of our lives have gone badly from the start. God knows that some of our lives are going badly right now. But this is no barrier. This is nothing compared to the power of God's favour that is with you today, that has always been with you. So this week, I simply want to invite you to remember who you are, to remember whose you are, that you are a beloved child of God whose favour is upon you. Amen. Well, as we pray together, I thought we might pray some words from David. These words I've been sitting this with this week, they're from Psalm 139. So won't you just bow your heads wherever you are and allow God to bless you through David's words. O oh God, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, 
Even the darkness is not night to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb and I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. Loving God, we thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to connect again, to discover again that it is you who knit us in our, together in our mother's womb, that your favour for us existed for each one of us before the beginning of time and that you will not withdraw it from us, Lord not even in the midst of the complications of our lives, not even in the midst of our bad choices. So God, this week, may we stand in that place of deep peace that is your presence, that is the gift of your Holy Spirit. May you whisper to us again, Lord, this morning, who we are, truly who we are, your beloved children, And may we experience the great gift of that. Your favour poured out each day upon us. Your grace renewed every morning, Lord. We're so grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done in taking the broken parts of us and washing them in grace and in love and forgiveness and restoring us to new life. In Jesus' name we pray.